I want to start with a word that might seem strange for Christmas message, and that word is gloom. Gloom is defined as partial or total darkness or as a state of depression and despondency. Another definition would be a a picture of the weather outside today, (laughs) a little bit gloomy. But with that definition in mind, have you felt any gloom this past year? Have you felt any gloom when thinking about the world or the nation or your family or even yourself? On a, a worldwide level, we could talk about terrorist attacks and wars that are going on in different places in the globe. And on a national level, we're preparing for another ugly and polarizing presidential election next year. Our nation continues to decay morally and culturally as well, but seems to be an increase, increasing pace. Now, on the family front, even though our church is blessed with so many young children who are such a joy, it doesn't take long being a parent before you realize even that can have its share of gloom. Now, I heard a, a family counselor recently joke that everyone thinks that they would be a perfect parent until they have a child. <laughs> Isn't that true? He went on to, to say that, that no other human relationship is so prone to inducing guilt as the relationship of a parent to their child. Because as parents, we can often see in real time the way that our own sin and character flaws impact and negatively shape our kids. I know that some of you are currently struggling to fight this gloom of parental guilt. And all of us, to different degrees, feel the pull toward gloom that comes from frustrating and disappointing circumstances, whether it's a bad job or financial stress or health issues. Now, this time of year, especially, can be gloomy for those who've lost loved ones or have broken relationships with family and friends. So why do I share all of that? What's the connection between gloom and between Christmas? Well, we're going to answer that question by looking at two main points from our passage in Isaiah, the great gloom and the greatest gift. If you're taking notes, it's the great gloom and the greatest gift. To unpack just how amazing this famous prophecy is in Isaiah 9, it helps to unpack the the gloomy context before it. Chapter 8 concludes with these verses. Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. The prophet tells the people here that if they refuse to believe God's word and speak it as the instruction they live by, then there will be no dawn for them, a.k.a. no hope. No escape from the darkness. He explains this further in verses 21 through 22. They'll wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they'll become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they'll be driven into thick darkness. The people were suffering because of their own rebellion, but instead of turning back to God, They cursed him, and they refused to to look to him at all for help. Verse 22, look at that again. It says, they turn from God, they curse God, and then it says, they will look toward the earth. There's a, a general principle here that the more you look at earth for hope, the more dark and gloomy life will become. The more individuals and nations reject God and look exclusively to this world for their hope and their help and their happiness, 
the darker and more depressing life gradually becomes. It's not instantaneous, but over time, life becomes darker, gloomier. Why is that the case? Well, there are many reasons And in Isaiah 8, the darkness and gloom refer to the Assyrian army coming to destroy Judah and take the Jews into captivity. That's the immediate context of that prophecy. But there's an even deeper reason this principle is true, and that's because human beings, we're created beings. And since we're created beings, that means that we've been designed with a purpose. Each of us was made and designed by God to find our ultimate satisfaction and security and significance in a loving relationship with him. However, because of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, all of us naturally assume life will be better if we operate as our own God, if we live independent of our maker and trying to be in control of our own lives. Now, you don't have to live very long to discover that there tends to be consequences When something is used for a purpose it's not intended to be used for. I have a a couple of examples for you. The first is a bottle of laxatives. Now, that bottle, I don't know about you, it looks way too much like ibuprofen to me. So if someone pops a few of those because they have a headache, because they have fever, they're hoping for their pain to be relieved, their pain's not going to go away. They're just going to get different pain, right? And that's because they're using something in a way it wasn't intended for. One other illustration that's a little bit more serious, this one here, don't hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. There can be major consequences if you do that, right? So the the idea is when you use something in a way it's not intended for, there can be real consequences. And when we ignore God's design for us as human beings that is communicated in his word, When we look only to this life for hope, independent of him, then one of the many consequences is that we're forced to wrestle with questions that human beings were never meant to answer. One one example is, who are you? Who are you? It seems like a, a simple question, and it should be. Our existence and our identity are wonderful gifts from God, but if you ignore his word, then you're forced to try and create your own identity and even your own morality and purpose for living by yourself. Our culture, like Adam and Eve in the garden, they view this as freedom. Our society views creating your own identity and following your own heart and desires as the most critical component of happiness. Well, if you actually live that way, if you try and live that way over time, you'll find that it ends in emptiness and that it's actually crushing. It doesn't give life. It actually crushes life. Consider three different angles. First, instead of seeing that we are made in the image of God with inherent value and dignity, if you reject God's design, then you'll be forced to constantly seek to make yourself valuable and significant, to validate your existence day after day. Second, instead of resting in God's infinite power and sovereignty, you'll be forced to constantly try to provide security and stability for yourself to try and meet the many physical, emotional, and relational needs that we have each day. Third, if fulfillment comes from following your own heart, then your happiness is totally dependent on you. And that's perhaps the most crushing burden of them all. Do you know why? Some of you are probably thinking to yourself, my happiness being dependent on me, how, how is that a negative? Well, to begin with, if fulfillment comes from being true to yourself and your heart, how do you know which part of yourself to be true to? Have you ever thought about that before? 
All of us have conflicting desires. We have mutually exclusive desires, sometimes even more than a couple of desires that, that we can't simultaneously follow. You know, we could come up with endless illustrations of this, but let me give you just one. Imagine that you have a lazy and critical boss. And he's constantly harsh with you for not meeting his unreasonable expectations, and, and he fires anyone who stands up to him. Now, some of you might not have to imagine too hard. Maybe some of you have experienced this. But in our thought experiment, I want you to, to think about how you, you would feel trapped if you needed that paycheck, if you needed that job to make ends meet. In that, in that situation, there would be a tension between the deep desire to blow up and kind of just give your boss a piece of your mind, just storm out. There'd be that desire, but also the other deep desire to keep that job, at least until you could find another one. So which desire do you follow? How are you going to be true to yourself? Do you go with the strongest desire? Because if you do that, you might end up punching your boss in the face and could end up in jail instead of just fired. Now, do you follow the one that you've had the longest, the most consistent desire? Well, that's problematic too, because our desires shift so much. Many of you, you can think back 10 years ago and what you thought you needed for life. Some of you are not even interested in that anymore. Now, even if you could identify and were sure what you wanted in life, the problem gets even deeper. Because when people actually accomplish what they set out for, what they want, when they accomplish and realize their biggest dreams, they still aren't fully satisfied. That, that is the story of, of my life. I've experienced that over and over again in my life. We give so many different examples again, but one of the most powerful, I think, is the, the example of Tom Brady's 60 Minutes interview a number of years ago. He did this when he was 27 years old after already winning three Super Bowls. He was crazy rich and famous, and he was dating a supermodel at the time that he soon married and started a family with. In the interview, Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? The interviewer asked him, what's the answer? And I have a picture here of Brady's face. It's, it's etched into my mind because it's so sad. The interviewer asked him, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish that I knew. Football success was Brady's dream, and he gave everything he had to achieve it. But when he arrived, he was still disappointed that he felt empty, and he knew there was something missing. In the same way, if you ignore God, if you look to, to the earth alone like the Jews did in Isaiah, 8, in Isaiah chapter 8, then no matter what you accomplish, and experience, you will still eventually feel that same, same nagging sense of incompleteness. And we try to shake it by turning our hope to the next goal or desire, but the problem is that nothing in this world can actually help us to escape it. Now, here's the most crushing part. If fulfillment comes from following your own heart and you aren't fulfilled, whose fault is it? If fulfillment comes from being true to yourself and you're not happy, Who's to blame? It's you. <laughs> it's your fault. Now, obviously, many people will make excuses. Many people have been hurt in big ways, and, and they blame others for keeping them from being happy, but that's a whole other trap, a victim mentality. But if you just follow the so-called so, so wisdom of our society, 
Be true to yourself, and then you'll be happy. If you're not happy, it's your fault. It's your fault. You've messed up somehow. And I hope you can see the hopeless cycle of gloom that this inevitably leads to. We look to life from our circumstances, which can't satisfy us, and which regularly reveal how dark and broken life is. And then even when we actually get what we want, we still find ourselves empty, which our society says means that you haven't been true to yourself. And so we have to start all over and create a new identity and create a new purpose. I mean, that's exhausting just thinking about that. It's a hopeless cycle of gloom. Many people, they they live like a hamster running endlessly on a wheel for the the next thing, the next relationship, the, the next accomplishment. So what is the ultimate source of gloom? It's our sinful hearts as human beings. It's our hearts that naturally rebel against our loving creator and look for life apart from him. The final tragedy, though, is that those who die in their sin, they'll spend eternity apart from God in hell. Jesus referred to this as the outer darkness, a place of unending gloom, both externally and internally. All the gloom of this life is a foretaste of the awful gloom that sinners like us should receive as punishment from God when we stand before him. We deserve darkness and gloom, and that's why the message of Christmas is so glorious. The message of Christmas is one of undeserved light and joy. And that brings us to our second main point, the greatest gift. Isaiah 9, it begins with a promise that a great light is going to pierce the darkness of this world. And then in verses 3 through 5, he promises that the gloom of God's people would be replaced by a great joy, a joy that's stronger than the excitement of harvest time for farmers, more intense than the thrill of soldiers who have completely defeated their enemies in battle and won their freedom. Now, what is the source of this great light and joy that overpowers the gloom of this world? What could be strong enough to do that? Well, shockingly, Isaiah says, it's a baby. (laughs) It's a baby. Verse six, for a child will be born for us a son will be given to us. The word for at the start of the sentence shows that this baby is the grounds for which the incredible promises of light and joy will be realized. Now this baby announcement in Isaiah 9, it's unlike any other in history. Many people send out announcements to friends and family when their child is born, like this cute one that I found recently online. I have arrived. I love how this baby's expression matches the caption so, so perfectly. There are many birth announcements, but this birth birth announcement in Isaiah 9, it is completely unique because it was made over 700 years before the baby was born. Now, just to state the obvious, that's a long time. (laughs) Now, this this birth announcement, it is clearly supernatural. Look again at verses 6 through 7. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The child is, of course, Jesus Christ, who is fully God. And yet 700 years after this birth announcement, he was born as a fully human child that first Christmas at Bethlehem. 
Jesus is the greatest gift that God could ever give to humanity. Notice how it, how it says a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. To see how great a gift this child is, briefly consider his four names with me. First, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is not just one wise religious teacher among many. The apostle Paul said that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. In Colossians, it, it says that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Jesus is in a category all to himself. And this means it's impossible to live a truly wise life independent of him. In fact, Christ was part of the eternal council of the Trinity that, that put the universe and plan of redemption into motion. And yet he was born because he wants to counsel you. Can you fathom that? Jesus Christ wants to pour out the wisdom of God into your life so that you can truly know him and walk with him. I'm a, a fan of good biblical counseling. That can be so powerful. But I want you just for a moment to think about how much better Jesus Christ is than any human counselor can be. You now, most counselors, you have to pay for their time and your access to them is limited to an hour, maybe two, a week. Jesus, on the other hand, <laughs> he paid for you with his own blood. And he did that so you could have access to him 24 seven now, would any of you feel comfortable if you had a counselor calling them up at 3 a.m. at night? I doubt it. Pro probably not. And yet, Jesus, he loves it whenever we look to him, whenever we ask him for wisdom. It says in James, he gives it generously to all without finding fault. You know, with my children, one of the things I like to do is I like to tell them about how God brought me and my wife together. Now, I wanted to be married for, for quite a while before we ended up getting into a relationship. And there are there are so many specific answers to prayer that God answered for me and for my wife. And one of the reasons I want my kids to be really familiar with that story is because I want them to be convinced that you can trust God in the biggest decisions of your life. He wants to give us direction. Now, at the same time, when my kids, when they lose something and they get frustrated around the house looking for something, I like to ask them, have you prayed about it yet? Have you prayed and asked God to help you find it? Now, I know, don't make fun of me. I know God doesn't promise to help us find every little thing that we lose, but I want them to understand you don't have to go to God just for the big things. He wants you to come in the little things as well. You can ask for direction at any time. We have some pretty fun stories for the way God has answered that prayer. Just recently, one of my buddies was over and he was playing with my kids and he lost his keys downstairs. Now, our floor, it was covered with toys. And so we looked for probably five minutes and I said, hey, time out, let's, let's just pray about it, guys. Let's pray. And we kept looking. We kind of gave up. But my wife, she went into the other room, and we have a huge tub of Duplos. And she kind of moved it around, and it had fallen in. I mean, we could have looked in that tub for weeks and not found it. And she said, oh, hey, here it is. Now, again, the point here is that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and his wisdom is available to us. He wants to direct us. He wants, he wants to help us. And like any good counselor, Jesus does not just address the symptoms of our problems, but the root. And unlike the world, he teaches that the root of all of the darkness in the world is the darkness of our sinful hearts. He knows that the gloom in the world, it comes from within. Jesus also teaches that you can't fix or save yourself, which is completely different than the false wisdom of all other religions and philosophies. 
Now, most people, they don't realize this offensive implication of Christmas, but it, it's so obvious when you just think of it. If you can make yourself right with God and deserve to go to heaven by living a good life, then why did God need to become a man? What was, what was the point of that? God had to come to us because there was no way on our own that we could go to him. Now, this connects nicely with Jesus' next name, Mighty God. The word mighty can also be translated as hero, which is exactly what we need since we cannot save ourselves and we need God to rescue us. The longer I follow Jesus and study his life in the gospels, the more in awe I am of him. I'm not less and less impressed. I'm more and more amazed. There's no hero that you could have in this life that even begins to compare to Jesus Christ in so many aspects and really every aspect of his life. And we'll consider the biggest way in just a moment. But before we do that, Look with me at Jesus' third name, Everlasting Father. This phrase used to confuse me because Jesus, as God the Son, is distinct from God the Father. There are a couple of viable ways to interpret this phrase, but we know it doesn't refer to his position within the Godhead or within the Trinity, but it likely refers to the unique role that Jesus had when he came to earth. For example, I've, I've always been a son, and now I'm also a father. And in a similar way, God the Son has always exist, existed as Son within the Trinity. But in the gospel, there's a sense now in which he also has the role of a father. Isaiah alludes to this later in another famous prophecy in, in chapter 53 about Jesus as our suffering servant. He says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. This is talking about Jesus sacrificing himself for us on the cross. And it says there he shall see his offspring or his children. Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross made it possible for him to give new life to all who believe and put their faith in his sacrifice, in his work instead of their own. While no one can save themselves, anyone who turns and puts their faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, they will be saved. And the Bible describes that as being born again. That means that that God gives you a new heart. He deals with our deepest problem. He gives us new desires to be in a relationship with God that we didn't have before. He gives us a new identity as well as his children. He gives us access to the family love of God, the perfect intimacy and joy and delight of the Godhead that all of us long to experience. How does all of that happen again? How do we have access to that? Well, it's only through faith in Jesus' death on the cross. And in that limited sense, Jesus is the everlasting Father. Finally, Jesus' fourth name, Prince of Peace. It's hard to, to hear that title and not think of the shepherds who saw the multitude of angels proclaiming the night of Jesus' birth by singing, Glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The only reason we can have peace with God is because we are saved entirely by his work and not ours. If any part of our salvation was dependent on our performance, whether it was 1% or a fraction of a percent, then we could always blow it and we would blow it. But because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can have supernatural peace knowing that not only will God save us, but also that he always wants what's best for us regardless of how gloomy our circumstances are. Now think about it this way. We tend to instinctually, as believers, think that God is upset with us 
or that he, that he is uh, angry at us or punishing us when we go through difficult and dark circumstances. Sometimes we can even think that God is abandoning us. Now, is that true? We often feel that way, but it's not true. And that's why we have to remember the gospel. We have to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came to earth and experienced the deepest darkness and gloom of anyone in history. Jesus was betrayed, abandoned, unjustly condemned, tortured, and mocked. And when they nailed Jesus to the cross and lifted him up, do you remember what happened? The night became, or the day became night. There was a supernatural darkness that descended during the, the very middle of the day for three whole hours while Christ suffered on the cross. Now, the darkness that, that we deserve to experience, the gloom that we should get from God as judgment, Jesus experienced that in our place. And he did that so that we could experience the light and joy of knowing him. Isaiah 53, again, 700 years before Jesus was born, it perfectly describes what he would do on the cross. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, it was on him. The reason the cross can give us peace confidence, and even joy before God, regardless of the darkness of our circumstances, is captured beautifully by one author. When Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the ultimate darkness was coming down on him, and he knew it was coming, he didn't abandon you. In the cross, or in the garden, Jesus was looking ahead to the cross, the gloom, the ultimate gloom, the agony there, the wrath of God being poured out on him, and he didn't abandon you. He died for you. If Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now in yours? No matter how dark and painful your circumstances are or what has happened to you in the past, no matter what awful things will happen to you in the future, Christmas reminds us that the light and joy of the gospel, it's far stronger. God was born as a baby to die for you. And that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you that God wants to save you, and that God understands our suffering. He understands it because he suffered in an even greater way. Christmas also proves that God, he can take the worst things that happen in life, the worst things that happen to us, and he can redeem them. And he can use that not only to bring us into a relationship with him, but to take it deeper and deeper and deeper so that we experience the joy that our souls were made for. To close, I have two simple applications. First, if you don't know God personally, if you've never been born again, then receive the gift. Receive the gift that Jesus was born at Christmas to give and that he ultimately extended at the cross. You can receive that today if you admit before God that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself and you turn to him, you, you reject any, any confidence in yourself and you look to Christ. You look to his work alone to save you. Second, for the rest of you here, Enjoy the gift. Enjoy the gift of Christ this holiday season. In Christ, we've been given a better identity and security and purpose than anything we could ever dream of creating for ourselves in this life. The busyness of Christmas, though, we can often get distracted from that. We can forget that. So make sure get get time with God to pray to him and to enjoy him, to thank him, to get in his word and, and help, help you have your eyes fixed on him. Because if not, what will inevitably happen is that your eyes will get lowered down to earth. You'll look just to earth for your hope and for your happiness. 
As Christians, we don't have to live that way. We can look to the wonderful counselor for wisdom and direction each day. We can rely on the mighty God for the power to obey him. We can enjoy the perfect love of the everlasting father. And we can find the rest our souls long for, even in the busy holiday seasons, if we trust in the Prince of Peace. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, you are the greatest gift. God, I pray that we would see that in a bigger way. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never recognized their need for you, how they personally need a Savior, I pray that even now you would draw them. God, for the rest of us here, help us to enjoy you. For those here who are, are grieving, going through difficult circumstances, God, I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that they would sense your presence and your love like they never have before. For all of us, God, give us wisdom. Give us direction in, in this season, God, to not be so busy that, that we lose sight of the main thing. And I pray that, that each of us individually and as families and as a church, I pray that we would honor you and glorify you in a bigger way and that we would reflect the joy of being in a relationship with you. So we ask you to take these things again and apply them to each of our lives. And we pray this in your great name. Amen.